and you are delivering and rescuing people. And we praise and thank you for that. And we praise and thank you that you will be faithful and you will use us and you will use these gifts so that that work will continue. Would you bless these gifts to that great end that Jesus might be exalted in all the world? We pray in his name. Amen. Please turn with me to Paul's letter to Titus, and we'll read just the first four verses, this greeting from Paul to his good friend Titus. Titus 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you for giving it to us, for preserving it. And, and thank you that you give your spirit uh, to come together with your word so that great things can happen. And we ask that in these few minutes, somehow in each of our lives, great things would happen. May your blessing rest upon us as we think your thoughts after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Those of you who have um, traveled, visited uh, third world countries, even second world countries, even first world countries, you know the feeling when when those... uh, when those tires hit the tarmac back in the USA, right? Um, it's, it's a remarkable feeling. And last Tuesday morning, when British Airways Flight 2067 touched down in Orlando, um, I was euphoric, i got to tell you. I've told a couple of people, I've had my fill of beans and rice. I think I can, I can, I can live without beans and rice for the next 50 weeks before <laughs> heading back to Tanzania. Um, and, and it's a remarkable thing. It just, you know, I'm a preacher, so I, I see these things and they kind of stick in my head and they become illustrations. It's a remarkable thing to have customs and immigration people greet you with, welcome back, sir. Welcome back, sir. And it just, it, you know, I, it just made me think of Jesus and the great customs and immigration official who is going to say to his people, welcome home. Welcome home. What a great picture. What a, what a great picture. Um, several folks this morning said, it's great to see you. I said to those folks, tell, I'll, I'll tell you, it's great to be seen. It's great to be home. Great to be back with you, to see your faces, hear your voices, to know that you prayed for me. You, you know the word got out, I think, through, uh, through the elders that I left my backpack in Nairobi. It wasn't the baggage that was confused. It was, 
the one carrying the baggage who was confused, and I misplaced it and ended up flying into Tanzania. And you, you can't kind of hop on a bus and go back to Nairobi and get it. It just doesn't work that way. I asked what it would cost to be shipped. They said about $1,000, so that's no good. So what that meant was that everything sort of had to be retooled. And uh, after a day and a night in the deep, whatever it was that Jonah experienced, I, I, tell you, I think I tasted a bit of that when I got to Tanzania. A day and the night in the deep. I mean, just all kinds of crazy darkness and weird discouragements and feelings of utter uselessness and stupidity and everything else. Um, God was really faithful. God heard your prayers, answered your prayers, and and I, I kind of retooled things, and I think God helped. Uh, in fact, I know he did. Um, and what I'd like to do this morning, which for those of you who are uh, maybe here for the first time at Christ the King, or a second or third time, I, I, I want to do something that is not normal for us, um, because at this time the, the real focus is upon the Scriptures and the exposition of the Scriptures, and we will do that. But I want to begin with some stories, because um, this, is, this is probably the only time I'm going to have everybody here together, and not everybody is here, but most everybody is here. And I'd like to just share some stories, bring some greetings, and share some stories, and then kind of tell you what I did in Africa so that you can, you can sort of share uh, have some sense, some understanding of uh, what went on the last couple of weeks. Um, the first thing I want to do is bring greetings to you as a congregation from the pastors and wives who are in attendance at the conference. And I, I want to bring you not only their greetings, but I want to bring you their deep sense of appreciation for the support that this congregation gives to them through the Adopt-A-Pastor program, through well-drilling projects, through the support of Bishop Peter Catula. Um, so many people came up and, and wrung my hand and, and wanted to be sure that I brought back expressions of appreciation for the generous, generous way in which you support this, this whole Tanzanian effort. Um, I'll just uh, I'll just tell you about one pastor. He's actually the pastor who is on our refrigerator door. Uh, his name is Alfio Mugetta. Um, and a couple of years ago, the bishop asked his pastors if anyone would be willing to go to this particular village, which. Uh, it, apparently, in an already very difficult environment, is the most difficult village in which to minister in the whole diocese. And uh, Pastor Alfio Mugetta, with his wife Josephina, raised their hands and said, here we are, send us. It is, um, it is a very, very destitute place in an already very, very um, difficult, difficult environment. And maybe some of you have heard me mention Alfio, but he has a nickname, which I've given him. And I kind of stole it from St. Augustine um, and tweaked it just a little bit. His nickname is Not Able Not to Dance. Not Able Not to Dance. It is impossible for him to sit still 
when he hears the music. He must stand up and he must dance. If he were ever to come to this church, even though the music that he hears is very, very different from the music that we hear and which I was delighted to hear when I got back this morning, I know that Alfio Mugetta would stand up and start dancing. And you all would feel awkward and uncomfortable for about 30 seconds, and then you'd be up right behind him. Because what radiates from this man is a joy and a contentment and a delight in Jesus in the midst of excruciatingly hard circumstances that I envy. Not able not to dance. He knows the joy of Jesus Christ. And it's stunning to behold. So I bring you greetings from him, thanks from him and from um, all of the pastors. I bring you greetings from Peter, uh, the bishop and his staff. Uh, Again, we support Peter, which enables him to visit the villages, uh, to visit his pastors and be a pastor to them. He would not be able to do that if it were not for the financial support that we uh, provide to them. And so he brings, sends greetings and uh, his expression of appreciation. And I, I do want to tell you about Peter's health. Um, Dr. Max Hutchinson, who performed his heart surgery about a year and a half ago, traveled with us again uh, to, uh, to Tanzania to work in the clinic and was able to meet with Peter and examine him. And Peter's health is not great. He's had heart surgery, he has kidney problems, he has hypertension. But having said all of that, his health is stable. And his energy is returning, and um, we, were, we were encouraged um, by the doctor's report. So please continue to pray for Peter uh, and his leadership in the diocese and pray for his staff. He has a great, great staff. But please keep them in your prayers. Um, and then and then just a, a couple of other real quick stories. I had pastors come up to me during the conference uh, and, again, uh, thank me for um, the initiative that we've taken as a church to try to raise money to put wells in these villages where, where clean, safe drinking water um, is just not a thing that they know. They just don't know what that looks like. The only clean drinking water they see is in a plastic bottle. It doesn't come out of a tap in their kitchen. It doesn't come out of a hose in their garden. Um, They can't get it. And these well projects have been very significant. And Pastor Jeremiah Motogolo came up to me during the conference. And he grabbed my hand and he said, Do you remember me? Do you remember me? And I knew the face, but I couldn't put him with his village, and I had forgotten that last summer it was in his village that we took all the film footage of a drill rig drilling uh, a borehole. That project is now completed, and he said, we have so much water coming out of the ground that we've gone to the government to ask the government if there's some way that they can hook up some sort of pumping system so that we can send this water out to more remote parts of the village. So much water coming out of the ground. And we heard that testimony from a couple of other pastors. He said, do you know me? I'm thinking American Express. Do you know me? Do you? 
And finally, it came together that he um, was the pastor of this village we had visited and, um, again, was so deeply, deeply grateful for um, what has been done. And then on Friday afternoon, late in the afternoon, after the conference was over, uh, a couple of us hopped in in one of their vehicles and um, headed out to the village of Bukabwa, which is a village of 5,000 people. And it's about nine miles across from from one side of this village to the other. 5,000 people scattered around this geographic area. And until two years ago, there was no church, no Christian church, no institutional Christian presence in this village. Can you imagine such a thing? A, a couple of Christians. I mean, that was literally a handful of Christians. But no church. Can you imagine such a thing? You can't. You can't imagine such a thing. And two years ago, the diocese, because of its awareness that there was no church in this place, asked one of the pastors if he would be willing to go. And he agreed to go. And one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that this place had been so hard to reach is because of the pervasive influences of witchcraft. Demonic stuff. Again, stuff we just don't know a whole lot about in this culture. Real, real darkness. And so this pastor went two years ago. And this is one of those places where ministry of word and ministry of deed have come together to begin the real transformation of a village. We put a well in this village, and it's the same deal. There's so much water coming out of the ground, people can't believe it. And when we got to the well site, people just started coming out of the bushes to greet us and thank us and tell us that they are so thankful for the well and they are so thankful for the pastor who came and who is preaching the gospel, and there are now over 200 people who are worshiping. Many of them, I mean, we're talking about brand spanking new Christians, folks. This is not transfer growth. These are brand spanking new Christians. And many, many people who are seeking because what they've seen is evidence of the compassion that is woven into the preaching of the gospel. The God of compassion meeting a physical need, as well as meeting their deep spiritual need. So, um, just just a couple of stories of what God is doing and, and doing through us. I mean, it, it, now there are other people involved in this, not just us. McLean in Northern Virginia is involved and some other folks around the country. But, but God is doing this stuff through us. And uh, I want you to be deeply, deeply encouraged and with them be thankful for what is going on. So just, you know, just a couple of stories. Now, let me tell you what I did. Um, After a day and a night in the deep. (laughs) I mean, I'm telling you, I, I just, there's no, I wish you could crawl into my skin and know what it feels like to feel the way I felt, to feel that darkness is closing in upon you. 
and overwhelming you. And you'd, I, Barb knows. I called home. I said, I do not want to be here. I'd rather be dead. Is there a way for me to come home? Now, a lot of that's me. A lot of that's my stuff, my issues, my fears, and all that kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, there was darkness. There was real darkness that was a part of this whole deal. And I didn't sleep that night. I prayed. I cried. I wrestled. I tossed. I turned. And in the morning, the fog began to lift. I had to preach the next morning. The fog began to lift. I preached. Preached actually from from the story of Naaman the leper and and the little girl who was an Israelite who had been kidnapped by the Assyrian army, whose village quite likely had been burned, whose parents quite likely had been murdered, who was put in the employ of Naaman's household. She actually served Naaman's wife. And I talked at length about the fact that this little girl would have had every reason in the world to have looked at her master's husband and said, I hope you rot in hell. I hope every piece of flesh falls off your bones. Why? That's how we are, aren't we? When someone harms us, we want them to be harmed. But this little girl said, there is a prophet in Israel, and that prophet can make your husband well. Instead of justice, she extended compassion and mercy. And it was a wonderful thing to be able to make the connection between that little girl and another child. Not a child who was kidnapped. Not a child who was taken away from his home unwillingly but a child who left his home voluntarily, left the glories of the presence of his father to come into our world and heal us of our leprosy, curing and changing us and eventually perfecting us so that our flesh is fully restored. That's what I preached the two Sundays. And there were a few folks who responded. Maybe many did, but there were a few folks who got up out of their chairs and said, I, I want this healing touch. So that's what I did on the two Sundays. And then, you know, there's this whole matter of this conference, and I had Lectures outlined and notes and all of that stuff was in Nairobi and there was no way for Scotty to beam it over to me. So I just retooled everything and, and wrestled and thought, God, what do you want me to do? And I ended up, I ended up teaching from Genesis to Revelation and walking those pastors and wives through the unfolding story of the kingdom of God the greatest story ever told, the story which is mimicked by every other good story. Any good story is a knockoff. I've said this to you. 
Any good story is an imitation of the great story. And that's what I did for those however many hours of lecturing it was, beginning, beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, and showing them the, the pattern of the kingdom of God. That God's kingdom is a place in which he rules, and he rules through his word, and he rules through his word over those who dwell in his kingdom, and God ruling over them through his word as they dwell in his kingdom, in his land, rules them in such a way that they experience abundant, abundant blessing. And it was a great opportunity to remind them of things that I've said to you. That this God, this king, is different from every other king you have ever encountered. Every other king, every other ruler, has a self-serving motivation at some level. At some level, people in power seek to preserve their power, and they preserve their power at the expense of their people. And to be able to tell these people, these pastors, that there is a different kind of king who governs this universe, who doesn't preserve his power at the expense of his people, but in fact employs all of his power and all of the resources and all of the riches of his kingdom in the service of his people, so that his people might be exalted, so that his people might experience shalom. That's the pattern of the kingdom of God, folks. And i got to tell you, that stands in stark, stark contrast to the kingdoms that they are encountering and thinking about on their continent every day of the week. Because there is another kingdom that is seeking to assert itself. And it is not a kingdom of grace and mercy and kindness. It is a kingdom of darkness and oppression. And they see it and they know it. And to be reminded that their king is different is a tremendously important and significant thing for them. But then we moved on in the story and we talked about the fact that the kingdom has perished. And it's perished because of the rebellion of the first Adam who has taken everybody down with him. And as a result of his rebellion, God has imposed a curse upon the whole of the creation. So you wonder why there's drought. You wonder why you can't have fresh water. You wonder why things are so difficult. You wonder why there's so much heartache. It's because of that first act of rebellion that has plunged the whole of humankind into a condition of misery. That's why there's death. That's why there's sadness. That's why there's famine. That's why there's war. And God has imposed a curse on the creation. You're no longer going to work apart from thorns and thistles and sweat and blood. Life is going to be hard. But the first words out of God's mouth, after the fall, after the rebellion, after he imposes the curse, the first words out of his mouth are the promise of a serpent crusher, a warrior king who will come and who will crush the head of the serpent and eradicate evil 
and reassert his rightful rule and reign to the end and to the extent that his shalom again fills the earth. And in the process of doing that, he will gather a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. And that's the promise of Genesis chapter 12, the promise given to that Mesopotamian who was called by God out of darkness. In your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations. In your seed, Abram. And Paul very clearly understands that that seed, we're actually going to talk about this next week, Paul clearly understands in Galatians 3 that that seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the promised serpent crusher. And so the kingdom is promised, and then across the chapters of the Old Testament leading up to the reign of Solomon, the kingdom is pictured for us. It's described for us. And if you read 1 Kings 4, you see Solomon reigning in peace. There is peace on the borders. There is prosperity. There is blessedness. Everybody has his own piece of ground, cultivates it, farms it, enjoys the blessings that come from it. The favor of God is upon Solomon and all of Israel. But Solomon is not the promised king. His heart turns from the Lord. And so in the next part of the story, the prophets take up their role in the midst of the aftermath of the division of the kingdom and the rebellion of Solomon and Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the the northern and southern kingdoms. The prophets take up their work and their ministry, and their ministry is a ministry of prophesying the coming of a greater king, the king that Israel longs for, the king that the world longs for, and prophesying a perfected kingdom where the shalom of that king will reign. So at the end of the prophetic period, and after 400 years of silence, the king comes. You following this story? You know this story? You bored with this? I hope not. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got to Tanzania and realized my backpack was gone. And I got into this story, and they could not shut me up. We went into the lunch hour. We went into the break times. At the end of the prophetic period, in that period, and after 400 years of silence, four centuries, how many generations is that? Dozens of generations. Not a word from a prophet. No king in Israel. The temple has been destroyed. There's no work for the priest to do. Prophet, priest, king. It's all ashes. And if you're a Jew living in the 2nd century B.C., the 1st century B.C., the 3rd century, you're wondering, where is God? Has it all failed? Is it all over? Is the story at an end? And after all of those 400 years, that pregnant silence, John the Baptist shows up. And following John the Baptist comes this itinerant preacher from Nazareth preaching the presence of the kingdom of God. 
and performing signs and wonders to confirm that he is the long-awaited king and that he is inaugurating his kingdom. And so the kingdom becomes present, present in the person of Jesus Christ, present never ever not to be heard from again, but to be heard from for the rest of human history. And after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, after the king comes and makes the realities of the kingdom to be present, following his death, resurrection, and ascension, he pours out his spirit upon his church for this central and principal reason. There are a lot of things the spirit is going to do. He's going to transform you. He's going to change you. Every once in a while, he's going to give you a quiver in your liver. But his main purpose in coming and Jesus' main purpose in sending him and the Father's main purpose in sending him together with the Son is that the Spirit might empower the church to herald the glad tidings of the presence of the kingdom. And from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to Rome within 30 years, The glad tidings of the kingdom are heralded. And Jesus, the reigning king, begins gathering in that people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue on the face of the earth. And he'll keep doing it until the end of history when he returns and perfects the kingdom that he has inaugurated and which by his spirit he sustains in the midst of this world. And that's our story, folks. That's our story. We should be an Acts 29 church. You know how many chapters there are in the book of Acts? 28. But it's an ongoing story. Acts ends with the Apostle Paul in Rome teaching and preaching the realities of the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the presence of the kingdom. But the story doesn't end with the book of Acts. The story continues down to the present time. And Jesus the King, ruling and reigning, is gathering this people from every race, nation, and tribe, and tongue. And he'll continue to do it until he finishes what he started. And that's what we are a part of. That's what they're a part of in Tanzania. That's what we together as brothers and sisters, citizens of this kingdom, are partners in. Now that's what I did in the lectures and in the preaching times, in the mornings. I preached from this first verse of Paul's letter to Titus and I need another half an hour for this and I don't have it. So I'm going to summarize in three minutes what took me three hours to unpack for those folks. Because verse one tells us who we are, what we're to do, And for whom we do it. And I wanted these pastors and wives to be reminded of the things that the Apostle Paul is reminding Titus of. Who we are, what we do, and for whom we do what we do. Who are we? We are servants. We are servants of God. And that word was an enormously significant word for the Apostle Paul. I'm convinced there are at least three things that are going on in his head as he hears that language, uses that word, servant of God, 
That's language that was used of Moses, used of David, used of the Old Testament prophets. Paul is putting himself squarely in the stream of those who across all of those centuries had been entrusted with the gospel of God, the word of God. But it meant another thing to him. He's writing this to Titus, and Titus is a Roman citizen. And if there's one thing that a Roman citizen values and cherishes, it is his Roman citizenship. And what he values most about his Roman citizenship is his freedom. A Roman citizen is a free man. But Paul here refers to himself as a slave. Why? Because when Paul was a free man, he was a slave. It was only when he became the slave of Jesus Christ that he became free. And that leads to the third thing. Paul knew his Old Testament. And if you go read Deuteronomy 15, you will see in Deuteronomy 15 a passage that gives Israelites guidance for how they're to treat slaves, Hebrew slaves. How do you become a slave if you're a Hebrew? You fall on hard times. And when you fall on hard times, you entrust yourself to somebody else. But after seven years, your master is required to let you go and let you go with a bank account so that you can reestablish life for yourself. But then there's this provision. If the servant has fared well in the house of his master, and says, I don't want to leave you. I love you, and I want to stay here. Then you will take an awl, and you will drive that awl through the ear of your servant into the doorpost of your house, forever marking that servant as a slave belonging to you and attached to your house. There were slaves walking around with holes in their ears in Israel. And if you walked up to one of those slaves and said, why are you a slave? The slave would have said, let me tell you about my master. How I fare well in his house. And how I love my master. Because of how he has treated me. Paul had a symbolic hole in his ear and was only too glad to identify himself as a slave so that he could tell people about his master. This is very convicting, folks. How gripped am I? I'm not going to speak for you. How gripped am I by the grace of God in Jesus Christ that has set me free from my bondage and given me real freedom? How gripped am I by that? Paul was so gripped by it that when he wrote Titus, it was the first thing out of his mouth. So who are we? We're servants. What do we do? He says he's an apostle, which means a sent one. An apostle is given a message commissioned by one who gives him the message and his responsibility is to go and deliver the message. That's our job. 
We're not apostles, capital A, but we are sent ones, sent into this world with a message to herald and proclaim the good news, the glad tidings of the kingdom, and for whom, Paul says in verse 1, we do it for the sake of the faith of the elect. Who are the elect? Don't, don't, get, don't get your shorts all twisted up about this thing. Just realize that the Father gave a people to the Son before the foundation of the world, and the Son came into the world to die for that people. And Jesus, having died for that people, rules and reigns at the right hand of the fathers, poured out his spirit on the church so that the church can go find them. That's what I said to these pastors and wives. Go back to your villages. They're there. You find them. And you find them by heralding the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. So who are we? Slaves. What do we do? We proclaim. For whom? For those whom God will draw to himself through this proclamation. Now, last thing in the last 30 seconds. There are concerns in Africa. There are concerns around the world. Concerns that come from the kingdom of darkness, from kingdoms that want to squash the kingdom of light and life. And so my encouragement to you, and I am convicted by this, my encouragement to us is that we redouble our efforts in praying for our brothers and sisters in what is a very, very difficult time and place. And not only them, and I'm going to talk about this next week too, not only them, but our brothers and sisters on all of the continents of this planet. So the next time there's an opportunity for us to gather on Sunday evenings to pray, I hope there are too many people here and that we have to break up into small groups so that we can pray that the gospel of the kingdom will penetrate the nations of the earth and by it, Jesus will have the people for whom he's died. That's my last two weeks. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being faithful to me and to us. Thank you for this great calling that you have given to us, this great responsibility and privilege. Grant me grace. Grant us grace. Stir us up to pray, to preach, to give, to live in such a way that the kingdom of Jesus is extended and the King Jesus is honored and exalted, we pray. In his name, amen.